Well, if you have your uh, Bible with you, whether a paper version or on your phone, I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 18. This is one where you're really going to want to see this in your own Bible. Um, and we're going to be in Matthew 18, really our, our pretty much a whole sermon. So even if it seems like I'm going away from it, don't close it because uh, you'll want to, to be there. But um, here, here's what I know to be true of every single person in this room. And when you look around the room, kind of look around, and you'll see there's a diversity of ages. There's a diversity of maybe uh, education or, or uh, wealth or, or whatever. But one thing that is true, regardless of how old you are, whatever, one thing that's true is every single person in this room has experienced hurt. We've all, we've all been hurt by someone. Someone has said something. Somebody has done something. Maybe they didn't meet our expectations, and, e- and even if our expectations are weird or whatever, like, we still feel that hurt, right? Everybody in this room has experienced hurt. And what that does, and we probably, probably haven't thought about it in these terms, but when I experience hurt, and especially when there's a great degree, I mean, I'm not just talking about that, that you know, something, something small and petty that you're able to just let go of easily. But, but when somebody does something that really kind of attaches itself to you, what it does is it, it sets up a debt-debtor relationship. See, in severe hurt, what happens is you took something from me. You took my reputation from me. You took my family from me. You took my marriage. You took my purity. You took, I mean, it could be a whole number of things. You took that from me. And so in my mind, and again, we wouldn't verbalize this, and and probably even as I'm saying this, maybe it sounds like kind of awkward language to use, but if you really think about it, it rings true that what happens is I begin to think, you owe me. Not only did you hurt me, but you owe me. A debt-debtor relationship is established. And so forgiveness is saying, you don't owe me anymore. I release you of this debt. You don't owe me. And forgiveness is a theme that Jesus talked a lot about. In fact, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter knew this. Peter had been sitting in sermons where Jesus one time, you know, they asked Jesus to teach him to pray. And so part of this epic prayer that we're supposed to pray to our Father is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Like Peter had heard Jesus talk about forgiveness and so... Peter one day comes up to Jesus. This is in Matthew 18 in our text that we're going to look at today. And, and Peter, Peter, is, Peter is wanting to kind of figure out the parameters around forgiveness. So he asks Jesus a question. We're picking up in verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then he offers his own like thought, his own response to what this parameter might be. He says, seven times? Now, we got to pause right here because the rabbis of Jesus' day, the religious, the Jewish religious teachers, they had given their own parameter, they had given their own answer to this question, and they had said a great parameter uh, would be three times. That if you forgive someone three times, that that would be sufficient in God's eyes, and that, that you would be a good moral person. And so Peter, you get this sense, and I'm kind of reading into it a little bit, you get this sense that Peter's like trying to kind of up the game, maybe make himself look a little better in Jesus' eyes, like I'm like the super disciple. And so, so there's a little bit, I think, again, I'm reading into it, you don't have to agree with this, I think there's a little bit of arrogance even in this statement. Like, Jesus, how many times should we forget the rabbis say three times, but I'm a little more spiritual, so seven times? I think he's expecting to say, Jesus to be like, Peter. You are so awesome. Like, actually, it's only five, Peter, right? 
And look at the response, and nobody was ready for this response. Verse 22, no, not seven times Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now all the math people in the room go, well, that's 490 times. So I can get out my notes on my phone, and I'll just make a little mark, and when I get to 490, that's, Jesus, he just, he just, he's not saying 490 times. He's just saying, no, 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 you, you can't count the number of times. Stop keeping track, right? And Peter and everybody else who would be listening to the story are so floored. And so Jesus does what Jesus does when, when he's trying to communicate a principle. He tells a story. And so what we're about to look at next is a story that Jesus tells to try to help Peter and those who are listening in on the conversation to understand this principle of forgiveness of releasing someone of their debt. He says in verse 23, 23 therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Your translation probably says something different. He says, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Okay, we got to pause right here. A lot of your translations say that the servant owed the king 10,000 talents, which if you're reading that, you go, well, that means nothing to me, right? So when we try to do the conversions, and this is always a little difficult, and there's a lot of different thoughts of what the conversion actually would be, we, we believe a conservative estimate would be that this is at least $10 million that the servant owes the king, to which most of us yawn. Okay, because really $10 million in our culture, big whoop, right? Right? I mean, seriously. I mean, someone literally yesterday won like $1.3 billion, right, in this super jackpot. And so, and we're used to numbers. You know, our government spells, uh, spends hundreds of billions of dollars or several trillions of dollars. And we just kind of yawn, like, okay, all right, what's, the, what's next in the news? Athletes. We'll get a contract for several hundred million dollars, and okay. But in this culture, like, and this is so hard for us to realize. I mean, Jesus is speaking 2,000 years ago in an ancient culture where they didn't, they didn't have any kind of wealth like that. Like, even kings didn't have any kind of wealth. I mean, they might have land, and they might have subjects, but they didn't have, like, that kind of wealth, right? So when Jesus says that there is a servant who owes a king $10 million, Maybe that's a conservative, maybe more. Like, they would all go, first of all, how in the world did this guy accumulate that kind of debt? Like, that's impossible. Okay, so, and if he did, he screwed because there's no way of getting out of that. That is so much, like, to them, that would be like me saying there was a guy who had a debt of a thousand trillion dollars. I mean, it might as well be an ancient culture, right? And it says in verse 26, but the man fell down before the master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Falls to his knees, sucking carpet. He's probably crying. There's probably snot coming out of his nose and onto the king's carpet. And he's just, please, be patient. I'll pay it back. And here's the thing. If you're listening to the story, you're going, no, you won't. You can't. You can't pay back a thousand trillion dollars. It's impossible. There's no way that you can pay. You can sell your wife. You can sell your kids. I don't know. You got a couple thousand kids. You can sell them all. You're not paying this debt back. I mean, they got the naivety of this guy to think that he can actually pay this back is stunning, right? Verse 27, and this is, this is, this is such a pivotal verse. Again, it's in a story, but it's going to teach us so much about the heart of God. Verse 27, then his master, the king, was... What's it say there? 
filled with pity. I actually don't like that translation. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute why. The master was filled with pity for him, and he released him, and he forgave his debt. Oh, so much, so much going on just in that verse. So first of all, he is filled with pity. Probably a better translation, I think the King James Version uses this, that he was moved with compassion. For us in modern English today, pity kind of has some connotations that probably don't work for us. Because pity for us is kind of like a, it's almost like a negative thing, right? Like pity, like I don't need your pity, like I pity the fool, you know, all this kind of stuff. No, really this king, he sees this subject, he owes, he owes the king an amount of money that's unfathomable and the king is moved with compassion. Here's what you need to know, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. I don't know what you think about God, I don't know what you think God thinks about you. But can I tell you this, your heavenly father loves you so much. And even when you've accumulated a debt that is impossible to pay, your heavenly father is moved with compassion towards you. He's not in a bad mood toward you. His posture is not one of holding a baseball bat waiting to beat you over the head today. Your heavenly father is moved with compassion. And what he does next, not only is he moved with compassion, because you, you, you can have pity and just walk, walk by someone. He is so filled with compassion that what does he do? He released him. Uh, some translations say he canceled the debt. Now, again, this doesn't work in our culture because we live in a time. We, our, our, the, the time we live in is bonkers. Can I just tell you? When it comes to debt, especially. And I'm not going to try to get on a political soapbox, even though I'm going to come really close to it. So don't... Don't think that I'm trying to, but here's the thing. We think that when a debt is canceled, that it just magically goes away. Yes or yes? That's how our culture thinks about debt. You know, just cancel the debt and it just magically disappears into that's real. Okay? This king would have a ledger, and when he cancels the debt, this money, this tens of millions of dollars, or however you want to think of it, this money now goes from the servant side of the ledger to whose side of the ledger? The king's. You, everybody with me? This debt doesn't just disappear. This debt is now, now it is the onus of the king, that the king is now responsible for this debt. Listen, somebody's going to pay the debt. When, when you've been hurt and somebody owes you, and you forgive them, and we establish the forgiveness of saying, you don't owe me anymore. Somebody is still going to pay that debt. We'll get to that. So, so we would call this grace, wouldn't we? Great, grace is this theological principle. Grace is that when I get something that I don't deserve, I get love and kindness and compassion that I don't deserve, that's grace. But not only does he give this man grace, but he releases the man from the penalty of his debt. Remember, he was about to be thrown into a dungeon along with his family, and instead in this moment, he doesn't face the punishment any longer, and that is what we call in theological terms, mercy. That he doesn't get the punishment that he deserves. That's why when people ask me, how are you doing? I always say, better than I deserve. See, we live in a culture where we all think that we deserve good things. We think we deserve cupcakes and unicorns. And can I tell you, we're one of the first cultures to think this, but we don't deserve good things. We don't. 
You can argue with me. I know some of you are like, I don't like you saying that. I deserve death. I deserve to be zapped and to be dust on the floor. But God. And so this king shows this servant, he shows him grace. He moves the, the debt from one side of the ledger to the other side of the ledger. And he shows him mercy, he spares him the punishment of this debt. And this would be great if the story ended here. This would be an incredible story, right? Like we'd go, that's the best story ever, Jesus. Tell that one again. But it doesn't end there. Verse 28, bum, bum, bum. But when the king... Or when the man, sorry, but let's start that over. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Does that sound familiar, that posture, that begging? Be patient with me, sir, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. <sighs> wow. You would think this man who has just been forgiven tens of millions of dollars in debt, you'd think there'd be like this deja vu moment, right? Where we would go, this seems a little familiar. Verse 31, but when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. See, I want God to forgive me, and I want others to forgive me. And yet it is so difficult for me to offer forgiveness to others. God, you don't know how much they hurt me. And in those moments, I need to remember this king who is moved with compassion, who moved the debt from one side of the ledger to the other, who spared this man the punishment that he actually deserved. So Jesus gets done telling the story, and then he concludes with this verse that we wish we could just white out. We wish if you're on an app that it could just be deleted and we would never have to see this verse. But these are the words of Jesus. So if you're angry at this, don't be angry at me. Direct your anger to Jesus. Because in verse 35, get up, you have your seatbelt ready? That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Jesus, please. You don't know. Jesus, you don't know what they did to me. Does he? Was he betrayed? Was he abandoned? Was he falsely accused? Was he rejected? Did he have people that he loved bail on him? 
Was he unjustly executed? See, unforgiveness is sneaky. It crawls into our soul when we least expect it. It's stealth. It innocently grabs a hold of you. You don't even know that it's got you until it's got you. In my 23 years of ministry, I would say unforgiveness is one of the most common sins and one of the most dangerous sins. And it doesn't necessarily cause car accidents or overdoses. But it will divide marriages and families and workplaces and communities. It will divide nations. Unchecked unforgiveness will eat you alive. Next week, we're going to get into the details of forgiveness. We're going to give you lists. We're going to give you how-tos. It's going to be really practical next week. We're going to talk about what forgiveness is not because a lot of us have problems with forgiveness because we've got a twisted misperception of what forgiveness means and what we think we've got to, what it means that I've got to do for the other person. I'll give you a, a spoiler alert. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. We're, we're going to get into all that. So you've got to come back next week. But for now, I I really want for this week, I want, when you think of forgiveness, I want you just to meditate on this story that Jesus told. I want you to think about the implications of that story. I wrote down just a few thoughts. These are in your notes. They don't rhyme. They don't start with the same letter. Probably you won't be able to remember them after this unless unless you look at it on the sheet. But first, the first point is just Jesus paid our sin debt and made a way for us to receive forgiveness. There's this fascinating passage. This is years after Jesus' death and resurrection, after his ascension. The apostle Paul is writing to a church, and he makes this statement. This is in Colossians chapter 2. This is absolutely incredible. Uh, It's a whole paragraph, so keep with me. Paul says, you were, he's writing to believers, writing to followers of Jesus. He says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. By the way, that's true of everybody in this room. That's who we used to be. In fact, if you haven't received Christ yet, if you haven't humbled yourself and asked him to forgive you of your sins to be the master and leader of your life, that's your, that's your status right now. You're dead. You don't even know it. You're a dead man walking. You don't even realize that you're dead in your sins. He says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. Then God made you alive with Christ. God forgave all our sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. In this way, God disarmed the evil rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross of Christ. So so here's the thing. Just think about how, how have you hurt God? How have you disobeyed God? How have you rebelled against God? What have been the times where you've said, God, I think I know a little better than you do, and so I'm going to do it my way instead of doing it your way? How have you been selfish? How have you been greedy? How have you been jealous of other people? How have you been filled with lust in your heart towards somebody that you're not married to? How have you lied to other people and shown deceit? How have you murdered people with your words? See, there's a a record of wrong. And Colossians says that Jesus took all, all of those records of wrong and he took them and he, he nailed them to the cross. Praise God. Praise God. He, what did Jesus do? He took our record of wrongs. He took all the things on our side of the ledger that we owed God and he said, you know what? 
I'm going to cancel your debt. I'm going to move it over to my side of the ledger. I'll take the punishment. I'll take it all upon myself. That's what happened at the cross. You know that, right? That's why Jesus went to the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took the record of wrongs, and he took that, and he nailed it to the cross. He utterly destroyed the record of wrongs. He said, it's no longer true. It's gone. It's erased. That that would be the first point that I would encourage you with. Here's the second point. Jesus clearly taught that we must forgive to be forgiven. Just can't get away from that. In fact, right after the Lord's Prayer, I mean, immediately after Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he gives this, these words. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And these verses weigh on me. I don't know what they do to you. Rod Loy incredible Bible teacher in Arkansas. He says this, he says, our willingness and capacity to forgive those who hurt us is an overflow of our experience of Christ's complete, full, and instantaneous forgiveness of our sins. So what Rod Loy is saying, hey, it's not an issue of that, that, that if we refuse to forgive others, that God won't forgive us. It's pro- probably what's going on is that we have never really completely understood the forgiveness of God in the first place. Have we ever really received the grace of God in the first place if we can't show that kind of grace and forgiveness to other people? Third point that I wrote down is just holding on to hurt only hurts us more. And you've heard, you've heard all kinds of phrases. I'm sure you've seen the things on social media, you know, that not giving forgiveness is like drinking poison and all these different things. But the reason why you hear all those things is because it's true. When I hold on to unforgiveness, it just hurts me more. So there's a guy named Louis Zamperini. Grew up in the 1920s. He, he was born in New York, but pretty early in life, his family moved to California. And he was an immigrant child, and he just didn't fit in. And so he got in trouble, like, all the time. He finally, he finally finds, like, his release. He finally finds, like, his thing, right? And it's running. Man, he loved track and field. He loved running. He's such a good runner that he makes it to the 1936 Olympics. Remember the Olympics in Berlin? He, he places eighth in the 5,000 meter. And he's, he's like determined at the 1940 Olympics, he's, he's going to go all in. He's working on that elusive four minute mile. He's getting really close. Of course, the 1940 Olympics get canceled because of World War II. He enlists gets put in the Pacific, and on a search and rescue mission, his plane experiences mechanical troubles and goes down into the ocean. After drifting at sea on a life raft for 47 days, Zamperini and two other crewmates were eventually picked up by Japanese soldiers. To say that they were rescued would be absolutely inaccurate. He becomes a prisoner of war, and for two years, Zamperini is tortured and starved. He's particular, particularly beaten just savagely by a guard, a Japanese guard that they called the Bird. By the time of his release in September of 1945, the U.S. had already declared him dead. His family had thought he had been dead the whole time. So Zamperini is finally released. He goes back to his home in California. 
And he would say, these are his words, that he felt like he never really left prison. He says every single night he would have nightmares and wake up just drenched in sweat. So he turned to alcohol. It was the only way that he could numb, numb what was going on in his mind. He's so angry. He said he would, all day long, he would just think about finding a way to go back to Japan and to secretly hunt down this guy named the bird and just kill him, just savagely. He thought of all the different ways that he would kill this man. He's married at this point, and his wife is finally ready to leave him. She just can't handle, just can't, can't handle the man that he has become. In 1949, she had attended the crusades of this young preacher that the world had never really heard of, this guy named Billy Graham. And after going a few times to this meeting in L.A., she, she told Lewis, basically laid down the gauntlet and said, listen, either you go to this crusade or I'm out of here. We're done. Zamperini walks into this crusade and he listens to the sermon and he says that he went to leave. <laughs> And instead of leaving, he found himself walking up to the front. I'll let, you t- I'll let him tell you the rest of the story. Riley, I should have told you ahead of time where that video is at. I just realized that. My life never passed before my eyes, ever. But when Billy Graham quoted scripture, my life did pass before my eyes. And then when he mentioned people in serious trouble, almost always turn to God in prayer. Was I in serious trouble? Yeah. Did I have serious problems? Yes. And that crash, life raft, and so forth. What do you do on the raft? You pray. What do you do in prison camp? You pray. That's all you do. You pray morning, noon, and night for 47 days, 43 days in the dungeon. Get me home alive, God, and I'll seek you. I'll serve you. And I, th- I never remembered that until Billy Graham started quoting the scriptures. Do you know Christ? Are you sure of it? Are you certain of it? All you have to do is let Jesus come in I started to leave the tent meeting and uh, I felt awful guilty about my life because at that time my life passed before my eyes and I saw an ugly life. Yes, I had a lot of great time, a lot of uh, great experience, a lot of escape from death, but I still didn't like my life after the war. It was terrible. And I thought, God, what a heel. I, I, I came home alive, God kept his promise, I didn't keep mine. And uh, so I went forward and accepted Christ. I knew I was through getting drunk. I knew I was through smoking. And I knew I'd forgiven all of my guards, including the bird. Never, bought, never dawned on me again that I hated the guy. That was the first night in all those years I never had a nightmare. And I haven't had one since. So I don't know how much of that you could understand, but basically he says the night at the Billy Graham crusade that he gave his life to Christ, that he let go of the anger that he hurt, that he had toward the guard, specifically to the bird. Then did you catch what he said at the very end? He never had a nightmare again. That's the power of forgiveness. Now, I'm not making that guarantee to you, okay? But I am saying our God is able. Our God is able. I don't know the hurt that you have experienced from another person. 
I imagine we could set up a microphone up here and one by one if we all came up here, just the number of people that are in this room, there would be things described that probably some of us in this room would be like, you know what, you get a pass. You get a pass. We all agree. All in favor, say aye. We all agree. You don't have to forgive. But that's not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. And God has more for you. And your life is not defined. It doesn't have to be defined by the hurt that you've experienced in the past. God wants to free you. But it starts with you saying, you don't owe me anymore. I'm letting go. I'm letting go. I'm letting go. You don't owe me anymore. 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 Next week we'll give you all the all the hacks, all the things from the word of God. But for this week, I just challenge you to to think through that. What it, what would it mean to release this person? What does it mean that God released me? And just begin asking God for help. See, forgiveness isn't something that we do on our own. It's something we do in tandem with God. God says, you know what, I'll, I'll walk with you through this. You're not alone here. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Would you bow your heads? First things first, and I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I won't have everyone turn around and look at you. But everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed. If you're here and you say, Ken, I've, I've never received the grace of God. I've never humbled myself and said, God, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve your grace. I've never experienced that moment of sensing the compassion of God and him forgiving me of my sins, committing to being his follower. If that's you, and again, we're not going to embarrass you, but I would just love to pray with you this morning. If that's you and you say, Ken, I've I've never received his grace today, I want to receive the grace of God. Or maybe I have in the past, but it's just God hasn't been on my radar. I've been living for myself, trying to numb the pain. Ken, would you pray for me? If that's you, Would you just raise your hand so I can see you and pray with you? Yeah, I see you. I see you over there, yeah. Anybody else? Several of you. If that's you and you raised your hand, you can lower your hand. If that's you, would you just, right now, under your breath, just pray. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just Jesus, have mercy on me. I believe you are the son of God, crucified and risen from the grave. Forgive me, free me, empower me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I wanna ask you to keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. Again, this is so important to realize we're not going to embarrass you. No one's looking around. But if, that, if you're here and you say, Ken, there's somebody.
who owes me. There's somebody who's hurt me. Maybe you've tried to forgive them, but you just understand that it just hasn't gone anywhere. You say, Ken, I need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you feel like in your heart, like as we talk about forgiveness, and anytime anybody talks about forgiveness, maybe there's something inside of you that says, I cannot forgive them. I can't. So here's the first step is just identifying it, right? If that's you, we're not going to embarrass you. But if you just say, Ken, somebody owes me, somebody's hurt me, I need God's help to forgive them. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, all over this room. All over this room, yeah. You can lower it. God, I pray for my friends. Maybe some who didn't even raise their hands, but they feel it. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would wrap your arms around them. Arms of love, arms of help, of empowerment. God, would you walk with them in this journey of forgiveness? Not because you're mad at them, because you love them and you want the best for your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.